Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to the Great Moments in Weed History Holiday Special. This episode right here marks the beginning of a new tradition for this show. Isn't that right, Bean? We're going to go through all the biggest and some of the weirdest and all of the wildest and a few of the just unbelievable stories that happened in 2021 in the world of weed and a little beyond. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that will be followed up by a rebroadcast of our holiday special from last year. Santa was a psychedelic mushroom shaman. It is all true. And if you haven't heard it, we highly encourage you to stick around and check out the whole episode. We're certainly going to be listening to it this holiday season. And also... Bean and I are sitting in the same room right now, IRL, something that we haven't gotten to do in a long time. How's it feel, Bean? Oh, it is a big pleasure, my friend. I mean, nothing against the Zoom sessions. The Zoom sessions have been keeping us, I think, all going. We definitely encourage you to Zoom sesh with your friends near and far, but having an ashtray between us that we can both ash into is really, I think, the way we like to do this show. Yes, that's right. And in fact, we are going to be sharing a joint. This is not something that I do with anyone anymore (laughs) except for my girlfriend, but you are the guy that I will share a joint with. First of all, I have faith in your vaccinated (laughs) capacities. And secondly, we have this very special joint where instead of paper on the outside, it's just hash. So it gets you really, really high is the short answer there. Yeah, I'm double vaxxed on ChemDog and then I got the OG Kush booster. (laughs) Because uh, I heard that mixing and matching them might might have some extra. Yeah. And while you joke about that, I'm sure there's some people out there <laughs> who seriously think that they're vaccinated because they've gotten the uh, OG Kush and uh, Chem Dog combination. But we're just here to have a good time, to get high together at long last, and to really celebrate the holiday season by reviewing this year in weed. Another announcement for next year, we have a new companion series to Great Moments in Weed History called Moments in Weed, a weekly show in which Bean and I go over a current story in the news, have a few laughs, get stoned together, and chop it up. It's a little bit shorter than our usual episodes, but it's still got the same flavor, right Bean? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing you need to know, dear listeners, is... Next year, probably starting in mid-January, this is going to be a weekly show. Sometimes it's going to be moments in weed. Sometimes it's going to be classic great moments in weed history. But what you need to know is go and please subscribe right now so you don't miss any episodes. And we're going to be a part of your life every week with some great weed history, with some great (laughs) non-sensory... And uh, just as stoned as ever and also twice as stoned. Yeah, absolutely. You will not be able to get rid of us next year. And, of course, if you have been a supporter of ours on Patreon, you're familiar with Moments in Weed. We've been doing it exclusively for our patrons for the last couple months as a little pilot program. We really love the feedback we've received. And if you are one of our patrons, you will continue to be able to watch the video version of Moments in Weed. And of course, if you don't support us on Patreon, you can still listen to the audio version on our feed. But we strongly encourage you, please support us on Patreon and help us keep making this 
independent show the way we love to do it. And keep smoking along at home every episode. I see that we've got a nice joint rolled for ourselves. Oh, yes, we do. And it is hefty on the hash. Bean, you and I are about to get really stoned as we take a little walk down memory lane. Yeah, I think hash in the holidays... Oh, goes together. It's a hashy time of year. It's a hashy time of year. It's a little cloudier. It's a little colder. You know, it's a little more cozy and hash definitely complements that. So yeah, we're pretty much rolled up over here on our end. Yeah, well, wait, what? No, you're not. Okay. So you don't have a joint roll? Just okay. You can just hit pause. Take that time at your leisure to roll a joint, to split a blunt, to pack a bowl. To stuff a bong full of so much weed and then just hit it with a lighter so hard or just, I don't even know how dabs work. I know they do work. I don't know how. I'm still investigating, but do that because, you know, once you've got all that done, we're going to be ready. If you're ready. For another great moment in weed history. going to spark up this uh, hash joint we've got. I'm so stoked to hear what we got in store for this episode. Yeah, well, I think any weed year in review, let's just say it off the top. This is another year where people got arrested for no fucking reason. Mm -hmm. This is another year where people are imprisoned for no fucking reason. This is another year where we have these laws in place that anybody with an eighth of a brain knows are racist and oppressive and counterproductive and everyone still living under those laws in the United States or around the world. We're with you and that is at the forefront of our mind now and every year till that changes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, regardless of how much perceived progress we see in legalized cannabis, regulated cannabis, medical cannabis, the cannabis industry, the burgeoning world of capitalistic cannabis, we still have not fixed some of the fundamental problems caused by prohibition, right? There are still people getting arrested. In fact, in some of the same states where people are still being thrown in jail for weed, other people, more moneyed people, people in a different sector of society are profiting off of cannabis. And that's an even greater injustice than the prior situation. You know, it's totally fucked. So we are here to celebrate cannabis. We always are. But we want to remind you at this time of year when we all are thinking of others, you know, less fortunate than us, that there's a lot of people who suffer under prohibition still. Yeah, maybe a quick shout out for The Last Prisoner Project, doing a lot of work on getting people who are still incarcerated out. We had a lot of episodes this year about activists and activism. We did that because that's really always where our hearts are going to be. So please lend your time, your talent, and your funds to those efforts. You know, if you're out smoking hash joints, whiling out with your good friend, recording a podcast, not thinking of anyone particular, <laughs> you also bear a responsibility 
to help others. Now, looking at the macro of this year, 2021, I want to start by just highlighting a couple of quick reports from Leafly, who does not sponsor this podcast yet, but is uh, a place where I uh, write a lot and, and definitely quality journalism. So they had their first ever Leafly Cannabis Harvest Report this year by David Downs, friend of the podcast. And it showed cannabis is now America's number blank cash crop. Where do you think it comes in? Hmm. I mean, I know corn and soybeans have to be somewhere in the top five. I'll just guess number three. It is number five right behind wheat, but that is also fucking amazing. And this is only Uh, counting legal cannabis. But how often do you think that someone who's ordering many bales of wheat accidentally Mm -hmm. is perceived (laughs) heard to say weed? And then, you know, it's like it's actually kind of suspect that wheat and weed are right next to each other in ranking. You know, I feel like there's probably a lot of just error in there as well. I also know, like, back in college, I may or may not have bought some big bales of wheat and then uh, chopped them up into little balls of cream of wheat. There's definitely a lot of good margin in that. Uh, But that just gives you, you know, one measure. And that is, of course, only the legally licensed Babylon version of weed. So I think when we add it all up, it probably is still the number one cash crop. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like the thing that we ignore so much here, and I feel like in reports like this, there's this inherent subtext that's like the new cash crop, the new star of capitalism in America is weed. But because a lot of the places where weed is regulated have no idea how the weed market works or how the weed consumer thinks, black markets are still booming everywhere. And a lot more people smoke a lot more weed than anybody really thinks. So, you know, from where we're sitting, having a foot in both worlds in some respects, right? We know that weed is a much larger industry than any of these projections are even capable of assessing. Yeah, shout out to you, Shine Dog, just selling those eights. <laughs> I know you didn't get counted in this, but but we, we feel you. Another really interesting report from Leafly, how many people have full-time employment in the licensed cannabis industry in the United States right now? Wow. Okay, so in the legal industry, again, this is going to be a fraction of the actual industry. Um... 10,000? 321,000 full-time jobs. Uh, None of this is counted by the federal government. Uh, This is Bruce... Self-reported or something? No, well, this is Bruce Barkett at at Leafly, the editor of Leafly, really doing old-fashioned shoe leather journalism and, and pulling these figures together because the government doesn't or won't count them. And huh. that is more than twice as many people have weed jobs as there are dentists. What? Oh my God, that is crazy. Well, I mean, that's a funny comparison because it's literally like the one business you love and look forward to going and supporting. <laughs> and then the other thing that you are like are like is literally the stuff of nightmares. As a person who's received a lot of dental work, uh, I can attest to that. Also, I remember hearing that, like, uh, the dental profession has, like, the lowest job satisfaction in America or something because it's kind of dark to be, like, inside people's mouths all day. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And that the weed industry, again, is the opposite of that. It's, like, the most (laughs) joyful industry to work in. But that's fucking insane, man. And, I mean, I think it really goes to show that we are, you know, culturally, 
fuck the laws, right? Culturally, we have shifted in America, and that's something to celebrate. Absolutely. And and shout out to our stoner dentists out there listening. Yeah. We all want good teeth. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the process. And I just, what you said reminded me of the first time I went to get my medical cannabis recommendation at the doctor's office, which was like the pot doctor's office. Yeah. I saw this guy and I looked at him and he just turned to me and he goes, if I got to be at the doctor's, this is the one I want to be at. <laughs> <laughs> the shaman. <laughs> I, I got a shaman's appointment uh, that time. Uh, can we reschedule? Yeah, no, man, it, it it's true. Um, and it, uh, that is just a really crazy statistic to hear because, you know, when I was eighteen, right, the concept of there being any cannibal cannabis industry, I was about to say cannibal industry because I'm already really stoned. <laughs> Tune in for our other podcast, yeah. <laughs> high as fuck and eating humans. Yeah, legalized cannibalism, man. I mean, come on, it's, you know, it's it's just the social construct that you. Th- okay, uh, we definitely want to disclaim that we're not actually cannibals. We're very high though. This hash joint has gotten us very stoned very quickly. Introducing our new sponsor, Human Meat. <laughs> Just exactly what it sounds like. Human meat, I'm eating it right now. They sent us a box of this stuff. I grilled it up. I gotta tell you. I know that other podcast guy likes elk or whatever, but that's just he doesn't have the cojones to eat human meat. It's true. And their their commercial jingle is uh, Kill the Poor by the Dead (laughs) (laughs) Kennedys. We can't license the song, unfortunately. But. Yeah, yeah. A whole bunch of... Very very litigious, those dead Kennedys. <laughs> so, speaking of Eat the Rich... <laughs> Let's get into our first year in review story. We really wow. also want to highlight all the great cannabis journalists out there yeah. covering this culture and this industry. I want to highlight that segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, here's some uh, eating worthy rich people. Uh, here's that. This is a headline from uh, friends of the podcast, Nushin Rashidian and Allison Martin from Cannabis Wire. Great journalism there. Yeah. Check it out. Altria, maker of Marlboro cigarettes, is lobbying on cannabis sales. Whoa. Okay, so they're they're lobbying for uh, federally legal cannabis. Is that am I to understand? Yes, they have been lobbying at the federal level for a little while, but now they're lobbying very intensely in Virginia, a traditional tobacco mm. growing state. And of course, they're saying we're doing this to make sure everything comes out good. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so I also first want to point out that Philip Morris changed its name to Altria maybe a decade ago. <laughs> Uh, but for any etymology buffs out there, that's a play on altruism, which is the opposite <laughs> of what uh, Altria is engaged in. But I feel like this is a thing we saw coming, you know, a long time ago. I remember like 10, 15 years ago, there were stories of like, oh, Philip Morris and, you know, all these uh, tobacco companies, Winston-Salem, are buying up land in Northern California in the Northwest presumably for cannabis cultivation. But it seemed like that was kind of like urban legend type stuff about the cannabis industry. Does this say that that's actually more true than uh, we thought? Why Why wouldn't they grow weed? They grow tobacco. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like preposterous. You know, one thing 
definitely kills <laughs> shitloads of people. And it still should be legal. All that. But I'm just saying. Yeah. If you're already selling the deadly addictive thing that you smoke. The idea that you're going to go to your fainting couch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you have to sell weed. And uh, just a couple more points. Yeah. You know, they've. Also made a big investment in a Canadian cannabis company called the Kronos Group. And they are also have a big stake in Anheuser-Busch. So this is like big tobacco, big alcohol. And they're not just trying to get into the business. When you lobby, you lobby for your own interests. They're not mm. lobbying to end the war on drugs. Or they, to have like a robust industry or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, it's it's because they want to cash in. This type of stuff is troubling because, you know, we kind of knew, you know, there's a thing that's come up time and time again uh, during this piecemeal process of legalization going state by state, right? It really allows individual state level smaller micro brew-esque companies to sort of make a name for themselves grow you know evolve a little bit in this gray area between state level legalization and federal legalization right but the moment that federal legalization happens it becomes something worthy of the multinationals attentions not just winston-salem or altria but coca-cola and procter and gamble and any company that recognizes this as a national or global market and feels like okay this is not just a state level operation worth a few hundred million dollars or worth a few billion dollars this is like a trillion dollar industry that's when they start making the effort and once that happens the small guys are going to get fucked right essentially because they're not going to have the capacity the price of that weed is going to be dictated by these massive companies right if you can buy you know the the Marlboro equivalent of a pack of joints at the store. Why would you support your local grower or whatever, right? And this is the coming future. It's scary. It's definitely a part of the coming future. There's no version of this minus the overthrow of the government, which we definitely do not advocate on this podcast. <laughs> on our other <laughs> podcast. Anyway, uh, you know... Capitalists gonna capitalize. Yeah, it's called the green pill. <laughs> <laughs> We've said too much and also not enough. Uh, uh, CIA invented it. <laughs> I do now. I'm recalling how much sillier this gets when we're in the same room. And I, I know, love it. Right? I fucking it's very love nice. it. Uh, <laughs> but I think how far we can hold the line depends on fighting for these laws and also fighting to get people to recognize that you vote with your dollars and the places that you support when you buy weed and weed accessories, that's what there's going to be more of. I, I, I think having our heads in the sand, it would be a huge mistake. And I think being fatalistic about it is also not productive. I think of Shaleen uh, uh, Title on a recent yeah. episode, the former commissioner of cannabis in Massachusetts, talking about how this gap uh, that you just described between state laws and federal laws does give us an opportunity to build the kinds of businesses yeah. that we want. Okay, I will accept that <laughs> and I will hold off on chicken littling <laughs> just slightly longer. But at the first sign that this is going sideways, I'm going to be running out in the street with my ass on fire, screaming bloody murder. 
bloody point murder. And sir, I will be there lighting a joint off your lit ass and backing you up. So. I think we just cracked our new logo. <laughs> it's very conceptual. Yo, actually, just throwing it out there, if any of our listeners wants to depict the thing we just described in illustrated form and send it to us, we will happily post it on our social media, uh, you know, pending how graphic you get, I guess. I will say free signed copy of How to Smoke Pot Properly, uh, which you can also get as a Patreon yeah. supporter. And uh, I'll, I'll throw in a please return to a bill of sight later. <laughs> oh, full pack. All right, you want you ready to take on our, our next... Let's keep going. So this is just sort of an area. Lindsay Bartlett at Forbes has been covering celebrity weed brand launches. I'll throw out a few names from this year. Uh-huh. I hate... I, the guy who played Steve Urkel. Uh, Jaleel oh, uh, White. Ju- Julia White. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, didn't mean to... Stefan Urkel. <laughs> uh, Justin Bieber... Uh, Seth Rogen's line came to California, uh, Lil Kim, and just sort of in general, this is a trend that obviously continues. Yeah, uh, and I, I think it's pretty lame until we put out great moments in weed <laughs> history. Weed. But no, I, I'm saying honestly, the thing is, I think that some of these people are authentically weed people and should be allowed to participate. Everyone should be allowed to participate I also think that a lot of these people don't need more money and that you should be supporting people of the industry. Now, in some of these cases, these people are real weed heads in that they are partnered with legitimate weed industry people. They care about the flower. They care about the quality. But I don't know. There is just a part of it that does feel like it cheapens weed world in some way. I don't know. Maybe that's just like the, you know, the naysayer in me. What do you think? The biggest thing I just feel like is weed growers should be the celebrities of weed. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't want to watch a weed grower act in a Hollywood movie. (laughs) (laughs) Some exceptions. Prove me wrong. Uh, Prove me wrong, Ed Rosenthal. But... (laughs) So, you know, we have our own celebrities of growing weed and developing different strains that, uh, you know, do incredible work. And I think it's our job as a community to really promote those people and make sure that everyone coming in knew because what they're really looking for is somebody's stamp of approval. Yeah. And that's really understandable to be like, oh, this person who I like and respect as this is the best weed. Well, it just happens to also be the weed that they're selling. Everyone says the weed they're selling is the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I do think that if you're going for name recognition confirmation, you are going for the 80% of people that buy 20% of the weed. And I think that if you are a discerning cannabis buyer, right, you are in the 20% that buys 80% of the weed and you smoke every day and you smoke a lot. You are pretty discerning. You probably have an awareness of what you like and you're not going to buy whatever Seth Rogen's weed unless you know it's really mm-hmm. fucking good, right? Uh, or if yeah. Seth Rogen hands it to you. Yeah. <laughs> That's Seth Rogen's yeah. weed. Which we're open to, by yeah. the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please stop. I also realized that uh, buying weed is our only, uh, my, probably our only chance to be in the 1%. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? But we are perhaps, well, to be fair, you and I don't buy a lot of weed. We buy some weed, of course, but uh, 
we're very fortunate in that people hand us things like uh, hash wrapped joints. So speaking of which, this thing we pass back and forth and hit a couple times, but mostly it's just diffusing hash smoke <laughs> into this office that we're in, uh, this little room, and we are definitely hot boxing here. <laughs> it is a holiday tradition. We're cousins today. Yes, we're is. cool cousins today. <laughs> Inside the holiday hashish hot box. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that's the name of the episode. <laughs> Inside the holiday hashish hot box. <laughs> that should be the thing that we do every year is do a hot box room. That, With hashish? That, dude, that's right. fucking perfect. Okay, anyway. And if you want a hashish hot box, and if you want a hashish hot box, the room you're in, just hit pause. Get some hashish. <laughs> or grow some weed and condense it. Get in a room. Close the door and windows. <laughs> you know how to do it. All right, let's go to our next. Uh, this is a really interesting story, and this affects everyone in all 50 states. Okay. This is from Lester Black at 538.com. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. And it's Nate called, Silver's thing. Yes. Yeah. And it is called How Mitch McConnell Accidentally Created an Unregulated THC Market. Oh, my God. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, they, you know, this is what I like to call old school clickbait. It's a real story, but it just sounds so fucked up. <laughs> that you're like, okay, I got to hear this. Okay. So I, what went down here? All right, so I'm going to read to you from the story a little bit. Senator Mitch McConnell, just so you know, right, uh, a Republican. Minority House or whatever. Yeah. Dickhead, total fucking (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Senator Mitch McConnell didn't know what he was doing when he passed the 2018 Farm Bill. The bill included his provision that legalized industrial hemp, Mm. a form of cannabis that can be made into a wide variety of products, including cannabidiol, CBD. Yeah. That part was intentional. But after three years, it appears one of the law's biggest impacts was entirely unintentional. Okay, wait. Is this, does this have something to do with Delta 8? Yes. Oh, man. Okay, so uh, I'll let you go on. But this has been a really fascinating turn this last year. In cannabis, it reminds me of like the Alexander Shulgin thing where it's like he would synthesize a new psychedelic molecule and then when the feds discovered it, they put it on the schedule and he just changed it a little and it's like it becomes legal again because the government hasn't learned that once you start trying to regulate individual compounds, like you're up against motherfucking drug scientists, fool. <laughs> you're not going to win that battle. And I think that Delta 8 is just another notch in the belt. For the world of drug chemistry, man. That is absolutely 100% accurate. It is the whack-a-mole approach to Delta THC. Mm -hmm. And so what is happening is you can grow uh, very high CBD hemp. It, It is not regulated as THC cannabis. It's regulated as hemp under this farm bill. And then you can synthesize Delta 8 THC from that CBD that you were able to grow as hemp. And this is, uh, I'm sure, no surprise to listeners of our show who've already probably experienced it, but particularly in prohibition states, Delta 8 THC just seemed to spring up overnight. And uh, this article gives a really great history of how uh, we can somewhat thank Mitch McConnell. (laughs) (laughs) That's... Fucking fantastic. Okay, I, that did not even occur to me. And I mean, 
Look, that's actually pretty straightforward. Like he pushed for, uh, you know, an agricultural bill, which included industrial hemp. But once you legalize industrial hemp, it's like, you know, there's a very fine line between what we consider cannabis and what we consider hemp, right? It's like, it, this is the same species of plant that's just behaving a little bit differently. But what they're doing is applying their own understanding to something that they clearly don't understand because they've barred the study of it for the last fucking century. So it's like, of course you don't understand how this thing works, right? It just shows uh, the level of stupidity. You know what I mean? Or the level of ignorance. But that's a win, man. It's like that. It's like the plant growing out of a crack in the concrete, you know? Absolutely. And I would just round this out by saying some of these Delta 8 products that you might be finding, especially like in a gas station, you know, it's pretty unregulated and you're putting it in your body. So Mm -hmm. we're not here to tell you what to do. Delta 8 THC is THC-like. It's not a thing to worry about. But how and where those products were manufactured you know use your good common sense yeah exactly and look out for additives i mean i think that the the most important thing to remember is that as long as you're consuming cannabis and only cannabis and that cannabis is grown cleanly right and it doesn't contain pollutants or leftovers from the cultivation process you should be okay right but as soon as you start getting into additives, right, any sort of additives, like, look, reintegrated terpenes, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm sure I've consumed stuff with reintegrated terpenes, but I think once you start putting additives in of any kind, it's a slippery slope. And I think that, you know, looking at tobacco, for example, uh, and how they just, could, you know, pump a bunch of shit into it. Uh, uh, wait, Altria is our new sponsor. <laughs> They pump a bunch of good shit into it and make something great, tobacco, even better. Yeah, I was leading up to our ad read, uh, which is Altria. Did you know that cannabis has been known to cause cancer in lab mice? (laughs) Switch to tobacco today. Just sprinkle a little weed on top. That's our new game. Are our products killing you? Sprinkle a little weed on top. Yeah, sprinkle a little weed on that shit. Uh, But yeah, that is... um, that's some shit, man. But you know what? I never thought I'd say this, but great moments in weed history. We'd like to thank uh, Senator Mitch McConnell <laughs> for uh, for getting the farm bill through. <laughs> yeah, much him. Okay, let's go with a, let's go with a fun one here. Yeah, I want to see. I don't know if this 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 one hit my nostalgia button pretty hard. Uh, this was an article from this year from a friend of the podcast, Adam Shorn, at uh, the L.A. Times. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote a lovely piece about great moments in weed history, which we love him for, among many other things. And he wrote this article called, I Needed Answers, My Hunt to Find the Backstory of the Perfect Pot Pipe. Whoa, interesting. So this is an existing thing? Who, Who blew the perfect pot pipe? Ah, not a glass pipe that he's referring to. And huh. I, I think he's saying perfect in a functionally designed way this is a pipe that is uh at least decades old because i smoked one decades ago huh do you do you do you know the prototype no i had not heard of the prototype so i've just google image searched it and yes i have seen this thing before uh and i believe i've hit one as well did not know it was called the prototype 
Pretty weird looking, like, steampunk thing, huh? Yeah, I remember fucking with my friend's prototype really hard in college. He was very into it. It has the chamber where you could put some weed. Yeah. It's got uh, a little, like, flip thing over the bowl that protects it. It's got a digging tool and these holes. And it was, like, sort of the Swiss Army (laughs) knife of smoking weed. And I just thought this was kind of a cool story where Adam says, I'll read from the story a little bit. If you invent something that becomes known as the Swiss army knife of pot pipes, a virtually indestructible, highly designed four ounces of brass called the protopipe that sells more than 1.5 million units to generations of stoners, you'd expect the world to beat a path to your door. So why was I the only one who ever made my way to the doorstep of a dusty industrial park just off the main drag in Willits? And in what state is Willits? This is in Northern California. So one of the cool innovations of this pipe that I remember is the little lid that you can slide on that then keeps it cherry. Because literally then you can just kind of light it, right? Close the thing and it'll actually hold that flame for a little while. It'll kind of smolder, right? Because, of course, the other option is using your lighter, which is something that I still do. And then if you ever see anyone with a lighter that's got, like, the middle of it's kind of melted just a little bit, or, like, that's, like, the spot that looks like it's a little worn down, that means they've been using it as a cap for a pipe. So definitely a cool little innovation. But so he actually tracked down the, the inventor? Yeah, it's just a cool story. I think people should, if, if, if you have some love for the prototype, just check out the story from Adam Shorn at the LA Times. He went to the source and found some real stoners with real high-level brains coming up with something that has withstood the test of time for decades. And so people are still buying the prototype? Like, it's still in circulation? Yeah, I personally, I honestly can't remember the last time I saw one. Yeah, I mean, Uh, we're talking, like, high school era that I remember this thing from. I also feel like every, okay, uh, we know you're out there, our weed preppers. Uh, (laughs) I'm guessing that you're the modern prototype. uh, (laughs) Consumer. Yeah, dude, this is a good thing to have on hand in the apocalypse for sure. You know what? If you are still hitting a prototype today, snap a picture of yourself, send it to us, gmiwhpodcast at gmail, and we'll post it depending on how graphic it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's got to be a certain amount of graphic or more. And also (laughs) shout out to graphics, the people who used to make those uh, bombs with a clown on them that... Would scare you if of you course. are afraid of clowns. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing like, you know, uh, Cypress Hill in one of their videos, maybe or in some photos with like graphics stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, and being like, oh yeah, that's the dope shit. Definitely the mark of an era of weed culture. Actually, all right. If you had anything to do with graphics and or started graphics, we want to talk to you. Oh my God, months. seriously. That would be such a good episode. Yeah. All right, it's out in the world. Next story. Here's a good, here's a good one for our side, um, and one that I think is the energy we want to bring into 2022. Uh, this is from Dan Adams at the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. The headline is: Marijuana trade group drops lawsuit against state after backlash. Key companies quit dispensary association amid boycott by equity activists. Okay, I'm really stoned from the ass <laughs> joint. That was a lot of words. Can you break this one down for us? I feel like many of our listeners and possibly the other person on this podcast are yeah. in the same boat. 
<laughs> I'm the stand-in for the very, very stoned listener. Uh, I think we all know that. I, I, I'm the I'm the stoned listener avatar. <laughs> all right, well, let me break this down. The largest business, marijuana business association in Massachusetts, filed a lawsuit against the state saying, we don't like the equity program. We think it's unfair to us, the people with money. I reported on California's social equity program for KCRW. If you want to check that out, it's like, you know, I don't know, Google that, <laughs> right? But like, it is really interesting that these social equity programs, in short, are, are set up to benefit victims of the drug war and put them at the front of the line for dispensary licenses. But they're so disorganized because municipal governments are, are so fucking mm-hmm. shitty at what they do uh, that a lot of times it ends up costing them a lot of money and there's not enough licenses and it's a whole fucking mess. Uh, so... Those people in that segment have a lot of reasons to complain, and they do. They go to City Hall, and they start campaigns to say the SCP program is bullshit. But it's funny to me to hear a story in which the uh, complainants, right, are from the other end of the spectrum. It's like people with a bunch of money being like, oh, are you fucking serious? You're going to benefit people who are victims of the drug war? Like, I can't possibly understand why they are more deserving of a cultivation license than I am. That's some shit. Yeah. Well, let me let me read you the key paragraph from this uh, from this story because this actually gets to an episode uh, we just put out. Ah. The Commonwealth Dispensary Association. So you know th- these bunch of weed businesses sued the State Cannabis Control Commission, the CCC, oh. we're in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's right. Not to be confused with the uh, Communist Party of China. Not at all. So they sued the CCC to overturn recently implemented regulations that created a new competing class of online pot delivery retailers and that reserve the licenses exclusively for disenfranchised entrepreneurs for three years. Marijuana activists and customers quickly responded to this lawsuit Mm. with threats of an organized boycott, saying the legal challenge was protectionist and struck at a program meant to benefit black and brown communities disproportionately targeted by police for marijuana arrests. And so this is where Shailene Title, our uh, guest Uh. on a recent episode, she had a huge role in setting up this program, saying... Hey, delivery is a great way to help equity businesses because it doesn't have all the overhead of running a whole dispensary. And we can guarantee every delivery license for three years to equity businesses. It's a great idea. Who doesn't want cannabis delivered also? Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, uh, hold on. We'll be right with you. Uh, So anyway, to wrap up real quickly. uh, But so... Uh, Shailene had played a huge role in developing this program and then she played a very big role in leading this backlash that got them to back down uh, and that got them to drop this lawsuit. Oh, that is fantastic. Okay, gotcha. Yep, pretty high, but thank you for breaking (laughs) that down uh, into pieces I can understand. But yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, look, this is a situation where we see that the consumer actually has some power in the situation, right? We've been talking about the coming corporate future of cannabis, this, blah, 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 Procter & Gamble weed, you know what I mean? But the thing is, at a baseline, if individual people, right, don't stand for injustice in the cannabis industry, then, you know, no amount of corporate power can overturn that. Because if you don't buy their fucking shit, right, 
What the fuck are they going to do about it? You, the individual person, right? And when I'm saying that to our listeners, you are probably in the 20% of people that buys 80% of the weed. You have more buying power than the mom segment or whatever, the, you know, the uh, senior citizen segment or whatever. People who probably generally, not to generalize, because I know some old heads who really put put it away, you know, (laughs) ounces, right? But generally speaking... All these new segments they've been talking about of consumers, right, are they don't buy enough weed to make these corporate profits something substantial, right? We are the ones who buy that much weed. So be discerning in where you get your weed from because you're powerful. And then if you come out, you're like, hey, yeah, I know there's we're only 10, 20 percent of the people here, but we're buying the most fucking weed. So you better bend to our will, right? Uh, if we don't stand for it, if we demand quality they're going to have to give it to us. Uh, which leads us to our next story. Let's do it. Which is about us not getting what we want. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know, this is one, it's, it, to me, one of the most infuriating stories of the year. And if we're going to do the weed year in review, it is always a mixed bag. This is from a big friend of the podcast, Kyle Yeager at Marijuana Moment, a source that we reference a lot on yeah. Moments in Weed. Shout out. Excellent reporting. Always. The headline says it all almost. South Dakota Supreme Court invalidates 2020 cannabis legalization initiative as activists pursue 2022. Wow. Okay. Uh, You know what I say to that is like, yeah, go ahead and try South Dakota. Go ahead and try to keep cannabis illegal. You know what I'm saying? Like the wave is happening. Resistance is futile at this point. The people voted it in. You're just going to lose this. You know, it's like you're just delaying something inevitable instead of like embracing it and, you know, being like, look, change happens. That's what happens. Societies change, right? Trust me, we've had to eat a lot of societal change that we don't necessarily fucking agree with, too. Right. (laughs) So it's like, what are you even doing at that point? Friggin' like Oklahoma has legal weed everywhere. And you know what I'm Not saying? like one guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know this. Uh, just in a larger issue, this idea that the entire state voted, and now that's going to be ignored, is just part of this idea of: Do we live in a democracy? We're going to save a little bit of that for the green pill (laughs) year in review. So I don't want to go too far down that. But I just want to end with this because here's a story that pisses you off. And now I'm going to just throw some some grease on the fire. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm ready. I'll just read this sentence from the article. The lawsuit was officially brought by two law enforcement officers. Oh, my God. But was funded with taxpayer money supplied by the administration of Governor... Christy, no. Dear listeners of South Dakota, they took your money that you paid in taxes and used it to pay two cops to sue the state to make sure that they're still arresting people for weed. Yeah, based on bullshit. Uh, And a little reminder that for many police departments, cannabis arrests are a really easy and chill source of overtime hours, which is even more of your tax dollars. I want you to consider that those two police officers spent their lives being paid your tax dollars, right? And 
taking overtime money for arresting cannabis users, a thing that you don't think should exist, right? <laughs> and getting paid even more money, and they have the audacity to overturn the will of the people. If you are a weed smoker in South Dakota, South Dakota, right? <laughs> yes. Get out, get out the streets because this is bullshit. All right. I may live to regret this and it's also not a binding offer, but if you're in South Dakota and you want to just come out to California and crash on the couch at Casa de Bean <laughs> and you seem cool, we will smoke you out. I need to confirm South Dakota address. I've I've seen the download numbers for South Dakota. I'm not worried. All right. I'm going to remind everyone that this offer does not involve my house in, in any way. It is only Bean's house that's up for offer. I don't want anybody over here except for Bean and, you know, maybe like a stray cat or two now and then. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, here's here's a story. Uh, let's just stay with Kyle Yeager from Marijuana Moment. Had, had to uh, recognize a few of his articles. Yeah. VA secretary, quote, looking at medical marijuana policy change following profound discussion with veteran. Okay, those profound discussions with veterans have been going on for a really long time. I'm glad somebody finally listened. So this is something I reported on for Vice. Basically, the picture of this is you're a vet, you go to war, you develop PTSD, right? You experience trauma, you come back, and the VA, the Veterans Affairs, right? They prescribe you a bunch of like antipsychotic drugs, basically drugs that do have effectiveness when it comes to the PTSD, but also have a lot of terrible side effects. Uh, and then... They independently will maybe discover cannabis, smoke cannabis, and be like, wow, this helps me a lot. Me, personally, Abdullah, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2007, and cannabis really helped me through. So I can personally attest to the healing power of cannabis in, in this respect, right? Uh, and then, basically, they drug test you at the VA, and they say, oh, you've come up positive for cannabis, so we're not going to give you any of your medication. And it, not realizing that... It is very often a combination of these medicines. Cannabis is not only helping you through the PTSD portion, right? But it's also offsetting some of the negative side effects of the antipsychotics that you're on. So every person really has to find their own way with it, right? The difference between cannabis and the antipsychotics is that cannabis is way less impactful on your body chemistry. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, it's much more palliative in a lot of ways. I interviewed this guy for that article who was a veteran and... He was like, you know, this is the crisis that they're putting us in after we've put our bodies on the line and our minds on the line. You know, look, if somebody comes back from war and still has all their limbs, right, their psyche, their mind, the things that they've seen, you know, they're still traumatized. They're still injured. We owe those people a debt. If it was up to us here, we wouldn't have a war in the first place, right? But when they come back, the least we can do is give them the treatment that they deserve, right? So I always really celebrate any progress when it comes to the VA accepting cannabis as a treatment for PTSD, for, for veterans, man. It's the, it's the least we can do. They're such an important segment in the fight for medical cannabis equality. You have to believe in a policy, if you are the current VA, that says... People we sent into combat zones, weed's too dangerous. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's like these fundamental things that you just are so obvious. It seems obvious saying them, but like 
That's our current policy. Uh, two, as you said, you don't base policies on running into somebody who tells you something. I know, I know. That's so, that's You're so crazy. You're supposed to learn about it and give a shit. And then the third one is this is a factor of having an administration in place that still does not fucking get it and 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 seemingly not only doesn't get it as a political issue which should be fucking obvious based on every poll and every vote of the last 10 years uh but doesn't get it on a human level or it, it wouldn't be something that we're looking at after i just happen to run into somebody it would be something that on day one anybody would do seriously like, Profound Conversation, bro, we are in our fifth season of Profound Conversations, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Those are found on the green pill. Uh, <laughs> but here, here as well. All right, how about a fun one? You want a fun one? Let's do a fun one. Uh, you know, we had a little, uh, we gave a little slight gas face to celebrity weed brands, but... For a celebrity weed moment, I gotta say I was impressed. Conan O'Brien was uh, uh, doing his retirement show. His guest was, uh, we'll say, friend of the podcast, Seth Rogen. And they smoked weed together. That is awesome. Did they do it on the air? Yes. What? <laughs> oh, you missed this one. Holy. I didn't see this at all. Yeah, I guess, you know, look, I definitely go on a self-imposed media blackout these mm. days. Like, I think a lot of people do. Uh, and I have been finding that I, I miss stuff a lot. Uh, this is the kind of thing I probably should have heard about. But that's pretty crazy, I got to say. Because for a little bit, we were the only guys outside of a documentary context smoking weed on TV. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was not a common thing that, that you saw all the time in an entertainment, lifestyle entertainment show or whatever. It's kind of surprising to think of, like, two extremely famous people, right, in the United States, like, Smoking weed on TV. Wow, I mean, that's a broken barrier right there. That that that's uh that's something. And a pretty sweet walk off for Conan, who I just have to say, you know, is a comedy icon for for I I think anybody our dude our generation or yeah. after. As much as The Simpsons, you know, like when I first came to the U.S. at age thirteen, I, I would like stay up and watch Conan O'Brien almost every night because it was just like. I was like, oh my God, this was like made for me. Just like all those ridiculous characters and shit. Uh, you know, you can never underestimate his contribution to our sense of humor in a lot of ways. Shout out, Conan. And uh, we will now splice in whatever amount of that uh, episode I think we can get away with without. Yeah. Don't sue us, Conan. Come on. you. Can... Yeah, yeah. Look, we're discussing it. We're discussing <laughs> it right now. Fair use. I think placing it historically, yeah. uh, that should be enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have a lot of free time now. I, I don't really know what to do with downtime. Yes, I, don't I know get that sense from you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you do have time on your hands. I would suggest, uh, this is going to be hilariously on brand, try smoking a lot of weed for a long time. <laughs> I mean, try it. You seem like someone who doesn't smoke a lot of weed to me. 
Uh, I don't smoke any weed, and that's yeah. not a judgment. It's not that I have any problem with people uh, smoking pot. I think it's actually, you yeah. know, uh, uh, seems to be a fine herb. Uh, but <laughs> I, I enjoy... If there was ever a sign you didn't smoke weed, it's that you just called it a fine it's herb. It's a fine herb, as I'm told. But the couple of times I've tried it, like, it didn't... It, it, nothing really happened. Really? And, well, yeah, and then I, I think it metabolizes and becomes more orange pompadour. Uh, but you... <laughs> Are you, are you as, a, as a professor of weed, yes. telling me that this is the kind you think I should use? I think you should take one hit of that weed. One hit of that weed. And I think you'll have a really good time. And okay, yeah. yeah. Do you have a light? Anyone have a light? Do you have a light? Does anyone have a light? I do have a lighter, yeah. <laughs> one hit. All right, all right, tell me, and then you just get right in there. Huh? Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, let's come out of that one with one of the more rugged sort of true crime wild style stories Whoa. of the year. This comes from very good friend of the podcast, Mary Jane Gibson, writing in yeah. Rolling Stone. Check out Weed and Grub, her show with Mike Glazer, the hilarious comedian. Absolutely. Uh, and this uh, article was called The Oliarch and the Marijuana Fund. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Let me maybe let me read. Oh, I have I heard this story this year. Okay. Uh, I don't remember in 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 gory detail, but yeah, <laughs> let's hear. It. I remember hearing. This. All right. Well, I'm going to set us up with the first few paragraphs of this uh, excellently reported article from Mary Jane. Okay. Which is her real name? I have seen her driver's yeah. license. Everyone. <laughs> Dmitry Dima Bosov seemed relaxed at his compound in the Mexican resort town of Cabo San Lucas. The Russian billionaire was clad in rainbow sandals and a rip-and-dip t-shirt as he greeted executives from his latest venture, a cannabis company called Genius Fund. Heavy security patrolled the property's perimeter, belying the Russian oligarch's laid-back demeanor. There were ten dudes with assault rifles around an Olympic-sized infinity pool, recalls one employee who was there to give a presentation to Bozov and other genius execs, like a mini-militia. That was in December 2019, and Bozov had summoned his team to the resort to reorganize the leadership of the company he'd financed with over $160 million of his own fortune. On March 26th, 2020, just a few months later, they laid off the entire staff. Around the same time, Genius Fund shuttered its flagship store on Melrose Avenue and ceased operations less than two years after its inception. The company might have been overlooked as another expensive weed venture going belly up, but a multi-million dollar lawsuit filed in April alleged a sordid tale of corporate mismanagement, subterfuge, and fraud. Within weeks, Bosov would be dead. Oh my god, dude, this got dark. Usually in the weed game, there's not this much murder and intrigue. But uh, that's fucking insane. I-, I don't remember this weed store on Melrose. I guess that's not really, you know, a neighborhood I'm, I'm in very often. 
Uh, but that's fucking nuts, bro. It goes from there, too. Uh, and, you know, in the broader sense, we've seen multiple examples of Russian-Ukrainian money of questionable provenance. Yeah, <laughs> uh, oh my god. Coming in. I don't want to get too into the weeds on this stuff for legal reasons and for... Being frightened reasons. Safety reasons. (laughs) (laughs) But let's just say, you know, if you're, let me put it this way. If you're looking for just a kind of true crime thrill ride uh, type look at one aspect of what's going on in weed in 2021, uh, it's an incredible article. So now uh, a quick word from our sponsor, Vlad's Blintzes. Uh, direct from Moscow. These are authentic, <laughs> delicious blintzes uh, that you just have to experience yourself. Have a couple puffs and a Vlad blintzes, and you'll be thanking us. <laughs> it's funny, despite being sponsored by Vlad's blintzes, we've neither of us has ever seen or tasted a Vlad's blintz, uh, but we are sponsored by them, so uh, they're delicious. Vlad's blintzes. Here's another very 2021 story in weed. This one is from Jackie Bryant, and she is writing in Wine Enthusiast. Headline, winemakers collaborate with weed growers on new cannabis appellation system. Whoa, that's awesome. Well, I'd always... I know that there's definitely a lot of friendship and overlap between the wine industry and the weed industry. And, uh, you know, I remember, like, seeing uh, a winemaker and a weed grower... Like trading, being like, here's a couple of bottles of wine. Wait, here's some of my weed off the new crop. And it's just like this beautiful, like, you know, utopian kind of vibe. Uh, but what is the Appalachian connection here? Okay. So this is like, for instance, if you want to buy champagne, you know, that joke that goes around, it has to be from the champagne region of right. France. That's an Appalachian. Uh, it's saying that this agricultural product must originate in this geographical area. Oh, okay, gotcha. uh, So this is an attempt to uh, create a certification so that in in our world, if you were saying this is Humboldt County weed, it would have to actually be grown in Humboldt County and even down to some of the micro regions within these counties, the same way the grapes of Chablis is a town in France, and you can't call it that. Uh, Unless it's from there. Yeah, yeah, right. So I remember this being a thing in California a couple years ago, post Prop 64, where it was like, okay, you can't say... You know, because, for example, the um, Doset pen, right, used to be called the Humboldt pen, remember? That mm-hmm. was like, in the very beginning, they were called a Humboldt pen, but they weren't manufactured in Humboldt. Uh, you know, where a lot of really fantastic weed is manufactured and, you know, it really is a specific climate that's very conducive to a certain type of weed that's really good. So you can't go around saying, oh, this is a humble. So they changed the name to Dosit, which probably works better for their, like, pharmaceutical consumer base. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't think any uh, 20 percenters are, are smoking Dosit pens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good thing, I think, because there are regions... Uh, you know, that have been hurt by legalized cannabis, Humboldt being one of them. You know what I mean? You can't have brands going around like using the name recognition of Humboldt if they're not actually supporting that industry or part of that industry in some way. So that's great. Yeah. And then for consumers as well. I mean, we all have been in a sort of take it or leave it world when it comes to buying weed. But, 
even now that the stores are open, there's so much marketing and hype. Uh, even if you are really walking in and wanting to support small farmers and these traditional, you know, we should all, we all owe a debt to Humboldt. You've yeah. all been smoking weed from Humboldt County. It's been coming in the mail by oh, van, yeah. by yeah. hook and by crook. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> East Coasters, you know, the USPS has <laughs> served as a channel for Humboldt weed to you. You know, when you're buying those little rectangular clear prisms <laughs> of weed, you know what I'm saying, with a label on it, a lot of times that's from Northern California. And these are people who have been, you know, raided by, you know, you want to talk about uh, black helicopters coming down? Like, oh. that actually happened yeah. in Humboldt County with regularity. So it's like if if we have this opportunity to support those communities and get great weed to smoke, that is definitely something I'm excited about. Yes, sir. All right, got one more story for you, and it will be a reindeer ride right into our second holiday tradition, which is our psychedelic uh, Santa. Yes! Oh my god. Okay, great. Last story. What do we got? So our last story comes from also friend of the podcast, Jimmy Devine, writing for LA Weekly. The headline says a lot, it doesn't say it all. Artificial intelligence discovers 17 new psychedelic compounds. Okay, so I saw this story. I saw one that also listed it as like 8 million potential <laughs> compounds. Uh, so, you know, this sort of calls back to the Alexander Shulgin thing. You know what I mean? A guy who was uh, in the thick of it. I guess they've like AI'd him basically and, you know, like supercharged him. I'm going to nominate that we should call that software, that AI shogun tech or something you know what i mean because seriously that is uh the most appropriate name for it but yeah that's incredible and i think it just goes to show that like if you try to categorize things that change your perception or alter your mood in some way as a drug you're drawing a weird hard line right there's all kinds of chemical compounds out there there's all kinds of materials natural and you know human synthesized in the world but it's all drawn from this environment and of course there's combinations of molecules that we have not discovered yet that are going to alter your perception in some way that's a beautiful thing you know what i mean i think if we're going to use science to do anything it should be to expand our consciousness and that's what these substances do so i'm excited to get in line to, to try these out it is literally the first application of ai that I've been like, yeah, the benefits of that outweigh this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we are in so many ways so far behind in the science of psychedelics yeah. and in the science of pleasure Yeah, that, one, we've been actively suppressing the science of psychedelics, and we don't even acknowledge the need for a science of pleasure like we haven't gotten there we're still yeah. suppressing things because they might be pleasurable so the idea that there are psychedelics yet to be discovered or created that might be the psychedelic for you or i or for all of us and that we might all benefit from a world where people are able to not just access anything they want mm -hmm. But access exactly what they need yeah. is is a nice thing to think about. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I think that we really only scratched the surface because, look, using psychedelic drugs, for example, right, it really does improve your quality of life. And now, you know, 
what I'm saying is not as crazy as it would have sounded to the general public a few years ago. I think that's a wonderful uh, last story because it's hope for the future. You know what I'm saying? A thousand podcasts about a thousand <laughs> different drugs with Abdullah and Bean. <laughs> thousand years. A thousand years. All right. Good shit, man. I think that does it for the weed year in review 2021. Yeah, I think we great got, stories. I think we got to light up our second uh, shared IRL joint of the episode right now and settle in for our other holiday tradition here on Great Moments in Weed History. That is right. We are about to launch you into a rebroadcast of our holiday special. Santa's a psychedelic mushroom shaman. If you've heard it before, I'm sure you're going to enjoy the re-listen. And if you have not, you're in for a ride. Strap in your sleigh bells, my friends. Happy holidays to everyone out there from Great Moments in Weed History. Be safe, be happy, be surrounded by your loved ones, and get stoned. I'm really, really excited for the story we've got going today. Bean, what do you have for us? Yeah, well, it it is a Christmas story today, but it's a non-religious one, so a little something for everybody. I I should note, if if you came here for religious scholarship, as most people do, and you are (laughs) expecting (laughs) a story, if you're looking for Rabbi David Bienenstock, who's a real person, or uh, is uh, is it Islamic Studies Professor? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Professor Abdullah Saeed at the University of Melbourne. (laughs) Yeah. This is not their podcast. Uh, This is ours. But we do have an episode in season one, very serious episode about how Jesus used cannabis to perform all those healing miracles. So that's it is an epic story, an epic story, the greatest weed history story ever told. Some might say. (laughs) Some might say. Uh, But today we are going to talk about uh, an individual who I would say is the second most iconic figure in the Christmas pantheon, uh, particularly with the hint of uh, being a non-religious aspect of Christmas. I don't know if that's ringing any jingle bells for you. Yeah, I mean, unless capitalism is a religion, I guess. (laughs) uh, I think I know who we're talking about. Is this a Kris Kringle-related weed story, Bean? (laughs) It is going to be uh, a story about Santa Claus and it is also going to be a trip way back in time. And I think that some people may know the story and, and will, I'm sure, fill in a lot of fun details for you. And for uh, some people, just kind of hold on to your eggnog because I'm about to blow your mind. Oh, uh, my God. OK, <laughs> I am super excited. I've got my joint rolled and ready to go. I've got my coffee here. I've got my ears listening for this incredible weed Santa story, uh, Bean, you feeling ready? Well, I, I, I'm not rolled up yet. I didn't. I didn't. I'm just splitting my blunt. I didn't pack my bong full. It's it's okay. You can hit. You can hit pause. It's a it's a podcast. It's it's not live. Uh, but I'm personally ready. I know you're ready. And and when you come back from getting yourself all ready to roll or rolled, uh, I think it's going to be time for another. Great moment in weed history.
All right, Bean, I am actively lighting up my joint. Take us to Christmas Town. Let's talk about a really old Christmas tradition. This story is going to go back way further than than I think you think. But mm. uh, we're so we're we're talking about Santa Claus today, and it's kind of an unsolved Santa mystery of like who is this dude? Where did he come from? Uh, it's obviously you know very closely aligned now with Christmas, a holiday about Jesus's birth. Mm. But Jesus never saw a snowflake. You know, not not at least while he was alive and on the earth. He was a desert dweller. He saw those paradise snowflakes that were all promised. <laughs> yes, most likely. Well, definitely, or whatever you believe. What For the remainder of this podcast, whatever you believe is fine with us. This yeah, is just totally. <laughs> us telling you a story. Yeah, and uh, for, the, for the flying spaghetti monster worshipers, you are the most welcome here. Yes, uh, d- yes, most definitely. <laughs> uh, and so, so that's Jesus, you know, not at the North Pole, no snow. Uh, well, what about old St. Nicholas? So I looked into that and he actually resided. This is uh, most likely based on a real person uh, mm. from history who was a saint of the Catholic Church around the year like 300. But he lived in what's uh, now Demria, Turkey. Uh, and oh. I looked there. The average temperature in late December is about 50 degrees. Ha! Huh, so not a flake of snow there either. And this guy was like, you know, a toy maker in the Ottoman. How does he end up becoming the iconic red clad gift bringing figure that we all know and love or fear, perhaps? Annual gift man, as he's known <laughs> on The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Shout out John Waters. Yeah, one of my favorite episodes. Um, yeah. Well, then there's another potential uh, thread in this in this Santa Claus mystery, which is an interesting one. Have you heard of Sinterklaas? So I believe I'm familiar with this idea. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is perhaps like a Scandinavian or Nordic version of Santa Claus that is maybe like a little darker than the version that we know of. In in every sense of the term darker this is yeah. uh the this is the netherlands version of santa claus and mm. it is a pretty overtly racist telling of this story ah so i believe you're referring to zwarte pete is that right <laughs> he's in the mix yes oh god okay so for anybody who has not seen the horrifying images of this dutch christmas celebration basically there is a character who is played by a white guy in blackface who is part of the festivities of Christmas. Is that right? Yeah, he's like Santa's main helper. Now, I should say, I I've used to go to Amsterdam every year for the Cannabis Cup, which was uh, late November, early December. So I have seen this live literally stumbled upon it it is in my god <laughs> things might have things might have changed over the last few years in amsterdam and i'm not one like i don't know it's weird uh, it, it's yeah. definitely racist it's definitely weird uh but we're all at the cannabis cup we're blazed we're trying to get from one place to another for the next you know thing i have to work at and all of a sudden you're in this parade where there's like multiple people in blackface uh dutch people in blackface running around throwing candy frightening children it it, it was quite disorienting i later of course you know learned the story and what it is is for them for the dutch 
the Santa-like figure, Sinterklaas, lives in South Spain, but he shows up on a boat with uh, Schwartzy Pete and essentially a group of people who are Moorish slaves of Santa Claus. Like, Santa is a slave owner. Right, uh, okay. Uh, maybe in the lore, there's, like, they're friends or something, but no. Uh, and the <laughs> idea is not that they have come to deliver uh, gradiated gifts based on how good are you, you know, from, like, a nice pair of wooden shoes down to coal. Right. Uh, but Sinterklaas and his crew will kidnap children uh, who are insufficiently behaviorally adept in the eyes of their parents and bring them back to Spain to, in essence, enslave them. Wow. Okay, so first off, I'm so sorry that you witnessed that without any background <laughs> information. I think that's. I think that that is really a cruel thing to do to a gentle stoner, as I know you to be. But I, I also got to say, it, it's interesting that this is the origin story of the Santa that, that we know of. But of course, all these things have sort of been sanded down. Obviously, nobody asks like, oh, what race are Santa's elves? And like, do they get paid? Like, is there a union? Like, you know, none of that stuff even enters the conversation. But as soon as you see Zwarta Pete and you're like, okay, so this guy gets his slaves to make him toys for children, you sort of start to get the picture, you know what I mean, of this weird colonial background that you would never expect just knowing normal American Santa iconography. Yeah, most definitely. And also, I, I just got to point out, so Sinterklaas lives in the south of Spain. No snow. Oh, my God, you're right. Seriously, that's like like just above North Africa. It definitely does not get that cold there. Yeah, so all of this begs the question, why does Santa Claus live at the North Pole and ride a sleigh? And it is because... Oh, and the reindeer, too. We're getting That's to weird. the reindeer, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, okay. <laughs> the reindeer play a very, very cool and perhaps wildly unexpected role in all of this. So Ooh, I think, I think I may know a little something about what you're talking about here, and I'm... Even more excited than I was at the top of the show. Uh, but please do go on. Okay. So what, what we're looking at is that Santa Claus, as we know him, incorporates elements of all of these older stories we've been talking about. But the jolly old elf that we know and love largely derives from the imagination of Clement Clark Moore who was a professor of divinity at the General Theological Seminary of the Protestant Episcopalian Church in New York City. Friends of the podcast, obviously. Okay, and, and, and what time period uh, are we talking about here? He, so he writes a poem, a very important poem, that sets the modern Santa. Do you want to guess what year? Hmm, uh, perhaps like mid-1800s? Yeah, well, 1823. So, okay. So in 1823, uh, Clement Clark Moore, I feel like you got to just give him all three. He's a wealthy aristocrat, and he anonymously pens a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. Uh, does that sound familiar? Is it A Night Before Christmas? Twas. Ah, okay. So this was the original name of The Night Before Christmas. You know, as soon as you mentioned, like, a Santa origin story poem, this is the thing that came to mind. Twas the night before Christmas. And, you know, of course, we've all seen 
countless renditions of this poem over the years. Yeah, and what's kind of wild is the mind-bending part of it is, in the poem, he's like, Santa, everybody knows Santa. And it's exactly like this, but it's also the thing that made everybody know Santa. Because basically in the United States, and, and going back to 1823, think about, you know, we had lots, and we still do, of course, lots of different uh, immigrant groups who came to the United States with their own conceptions of what Christmas is mm. on a re- on a religious level and also on a like what are the traditions associated with it and you didn't have the mass media you, d- you didn't have radio even to sort of give everybody a homogenized version of this and so this poem actually ends up being the thing that blends all of these stories and and thankfully sands some of the rough edges of them <laughs> uh, off in the t- in terms of Sinterklaas and and produces kind of the Santa that we all know and experience at the shopping mall and on you know all these TV specials that's that's where it comes from this poem wow so this poem is the action comics number 1 of Santa Claus <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And I'd say my, my favorite reading of this poem is by the eminent Clark W. Griswold, uh, reads this to the family at the end of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh. And, and, and Eddie, with a man in his pajamas and a dog chain. Tied to his wrists and ankles. What the? (laughs) (laughs) So Clement Clark Moore, he publishes this poem in 1823. And at first, it's just in one small town newspaper in upstate New York. But the next Christmas, a bunch more papers republish it. And then it becomes sort of like an analog meme. It's it's now in papers all over the country. People look forward to it every year. And forever after, this wide range of divergent religious, historic, and folklorist traditions, um, mm. you know, from Sinterklaas and St. Nicholas to the pagan god Odin, and there's a British legend of Father Christmas... In a very American way, all of this kind of irrevocably gets melded into the traditional Santa Claus, uh, who is, as you mentioned, the god of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And it all started from a poem that honestly would more aptly have been titled, There's a Man in Your House. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what's happening here. It was uh, sponsored content for a home security uh, system of the era. <laughs> it was a bear trap you could put uh, next to your next to your front door and chimney. Uh. <laughs> they were like, see, and this gets back to the idea of like, you know, it's somewhere between bringing you joy and rewarding you for being good and scaring you for being bad. This whole thing is kind of about judgment. It's like at the end of the year, you are judged by this strange man who comes into your house, right? And then at the beginning of next year, you resolve to fix the things that he's pointed out are wrong with you. Yeah, so that fits in with our sort of Puritan American uh, conception. But there's still a lot of things unexplained. Why is he at the North Pole? What's with the reindeer, as you said, and a few other questions. So my question to you is, Hmm. what if there's another Santa Claus antecedent one that actually explains some of these more unusual aspects of the story. Yes. Yeah, so 
I think and I hope that you're talking about the mushroom cults and the relationship between Santa Claus, like the red and white colors that he wears, and the Amanita mushrooms that may induce hallucinations of the sort that Santa is attributed with, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, hang, on, hang on to your sleigh bells, everybody. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So this is the real story of Santa. And, and I feel like, you know, we've talked about the European origins. We've talked about, you know, how they've melded together in the most popular or marketable Santa that we have today. But this, this is something I only know a little bit about. So I'm very excited to learn about but it also is so profound to me that everything you think is just there because it's there has a crazy backstory. And this is one of those things. Strap in. Strap in. Uh, pour, if, if you need a, a glass of fortified eggnog, if you got to uh, roll up some Christmas trees, it, it, it's, a, it's about to get really fun and and quite weird and and I think pretty uh, enlightening and you know for those of us who might not have a religious connection to the holiday or any holiday mm -hmm. uh it, it's a great way to tap in and feel like okay there's a, a part of Christmas that's here for me too Tight. and so I I think that I hope the people who listening accept us as as authorities on anything we might uh spew about but I for everybody who might be a little skeptical, I'm going to bring in, uh, not literally, Donald H. Feaster. He is a professor of systematic botany at Harvard University. Heard of it, Harvard? Not that shabby. <laughs> and he so strongly believes in this theory that Santa's reindeer fly, as you said, because they're high on Amanita muscaria a.k.a. Mm. also known as fly ajaric, which is a psychedelic mushroom. It's kind of the most iconic one. Uh, it's got the big red top with the white dots. You, you can picture it just from seeing images of it in folklore and it kind of... Yeah, it's like toadstool in Mario. Yeah, I mean, you, that's, once, you, once you understand mushrooms, you see them popping up in all these interesting places. So what this professor does is every year he gives a lecture to his students on Christmas Eve recounting this story. You know, just so you know, there's, there's, this has uh, got a lot of academic credentials behind it. And according to this professor and many others, not only are Dancer, Prancer, Donner, and Blixen, especially Blixen, high as fuck on shrooms, so too is the portly old-timer manning the reins. Hell yeah, I knew it. And I always knew there was something about Blitzen. You know, his <laughs> name is just different from the other ones. Somehow he like sort of stands out, you know, and like Rudolph is the one that they're like putting up front and being like, oh, he's the really sort of special or unusual one. I always had a feeling about Blitzen. So yeah, the, the the way I always knew that Blixen was was pretty pretty heavily into the psilocybin is you know one year I got my regular present from Santa and then there was one that was from Blixen and it was Almond Brothers Live at the Fillmore East album. So. <laughs> knew he was cool. I knew he was cool. <laughs> he was and, cool. You know when you're when you gotta go on a sleigh all night, you know you ever make that like driving mix for yourself and you throw oh, in yeah. some some long jams. Yeah, absolutely. Mine is filled with like square pusher, but I also appreciate anyone who's got Almond Brothers on theirs. So according to Professor Feaster at Harvard University, here's what he says. You know, the idea is that the reindeer go berserk 
because they're eating Amanita muscaria. The reindeers are flying. Are they really flying? Or are your senses telling you they're flying because you're hallucinating also? Oh, yeah. See, this is so interesting. And and, and I've got to say that I have had psychedelic experiences that very weirdly have imagery or like color schemes or patterns that I kind of associate with Christmas. To some people, this might sound completely crazy, but if you've tried DMT or psychedelic mushrooms, you may have seen things, you know, like elves. And and you're like, hmm, like, why is there a parallel here? And that is not a coincidence. And, And that really is, I think, what's at the heart of of this story here, this revelation, is that that's all connected and that there is a very psychedelic nature to all the things we're talking about, the flying reindeer, the, you know, the elves, all of it. Yeah, so we've got these reindeer finding Amanita Mascara mushrooms, they're eating them, the reindeer are tripping, but that's not all, because then we have Santa, Mm. you know, the ruddy cheek. You know, Santa, yeah. (laughs) Hey, Santa. I know this fucking guy. I known him all my life. <laughs> I saw him kiss my mom one time. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's messed up. Fucking sad. If my dad was away. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be right back up that chimney, you <laughs> cookie stealing bastard. I know, uh, right? <laughs> you milk sipping fucking <laughs> elf enslaving. <laughs> yeah, you racist bastard, <laughs> capitalist pig. So he was the Jeff Bezos of his day. Oh, my Uh, God. So much the Jeff Bezos of his day. Holy shit. That's (laughs) such a parallel. Because, like, you know, you hear all the stories about, like, Amazon workers going on strike and shit. Like, those are elves making the toys that you want. They, like, literally bring them to your door. You know what I'm saying? It's like you have no idea. It's like, for you, the pleasure of this materialism is just there's like a, a, a thin veneer hiding all the darkness that, that facilitates it for you. And as we as we get back, as we move now into a much, much, much older Santa tradition, we're mm. going to see that that capitalism, spoiler alert, was uh, kind of implanted into the story by capitalism. It, it's, don't say. Yeah. Wow. Who would have suspected? So now we've got these mushroom... Uh, infused flying reindeer, like, you know, that's a real thing that they do. And now we have Santa Claus, our ruddy-cheeked, merry, magical fellow, who, as you as you alluded to, he dresses in a bright red suit with white trim, topped mm. off by a bright red cap with a white ball on top. Uh, makes him look sort of suspiciously like something. Yeah, he looks like a kind of like mushroom little dmt elf man yes he is dressed in an ensemble remarkably similar to the traditional fur trim jackets that siberian shamans would wear when collecting amanita muscaria for ceremonial use ha oh my god that is so crazy see okay so so now we're getting into a different religion altogether that has influenced this sort of religious iconography, right? And that's these mushroom cults uh, of, of Siberia, Central Asia, Europe. And this is something I'm, I'm really fascinated about because, you know, before, you know, the, the rampant popularity of monotheism and, you know, the, the major world religions that we have today, 
There were a lot of smaller groups of people with more localized spirituality that was, you know, rooted in the, the psychedelic and other psychoactive plants that were available in that environment. And a lot of them were coming to the same conclusion. So, you know, as we do when we eat mushrooms. Yeah, absolutely. And we should so mention this a shaman is a spiritual guide type figure in a lot of these older cultures who would ingest psychedelic substances themselves, lead ceremonies of other people. So not usually quite a dogmatic figure that's going to tell you what the religion is, but somebody who is adept with psychedelic plants of varying kinds, depending where you live by and large, and is given this ceremonial role within society and and a, a reverential role, somebody who is looked up to and initiates people into the wonders of psychedelic states. Yes. And you know what? The thing I love about shamans is that if you've got a guy who's your medicine man, who's giving you medicine that he wants you to take, you want to see him take it himself. You know, I, you know, I know nowadays, of course, we respect doctors and all that. But, you know, when one of them is prescribing you Oxycontin, I feel like it's like you're going to take a couple of these with me. <laughs> so I think it's very interesting that we're talking about uh, traditions where a provider of medicinal support and spiritual support, it's, it's sort of all balled into, you know, the same person. Yeah, those lines are very, very blurred, and I think as they should be. I think the unblurring of those lines has been to our detriment to yes. separate the spiritual, the medicinal, the nutritional. I, I don't know the nutritional value of psychedelic mushrooms. I wouldn't rely on them as a part of a healthy breakfast, uh, but mm -hmm. they're good for your brain. Yes. And so going to a different academic, so as uh, John Rush, an anthropologist at Sierra College, explained it this way. He said, up until a few hundred years ago, these practicing shamans would dress up like Amanita muscaria mushrooms and go out to collect them. Then, and let me know if this sounds familiar, they would dry them and give them as gifts to people on the winter solstice, which is December 21st, usually. Oh, okay. So now we've got the convention of gift giving that has entered the, the fold. And frankly, a far better gift than any of the gifts most of us will receive <laughs> on any holiday season. Seriously, would you rather have like a sock subscription or would you rather have a fat sack of mushrooms? I mean, come on. One of them is just, you know, more crap that you're going to accumulate in your closet and the other is going to inch you towards enlightenment i mean which one is the better gift truly i i will say if if if, if amazon was doing the people who bought this also bought that uh <laughs> some good warm socks if you're going to be out tripping in in mid-december you don't want your feet to get cold that's so you know? true yeah, and, and actually, I mean, it does make me think that some of the more harrowing trips I've had, and not in the sense of being a bad trip, but just uh, being in elements that are harder to enjoy when you're tripping, have been in the wintertime. You know, it's not like tripping season stops when it gets cold or anything like mm. that. So, you know, it's like I definitely have memories of experiencing trips outside 
And they were always like a little bit more intense, but I also am a person who grew up in Thailand, so I'm not exactly mm-hmm. as acclimated as, you know, uh, some of the shaman disciples we're talking about in Siberia. Yeah, well, we're, that gets to our next point. And, and our next deep connection to modern Christmas is yeah. it's December 21st, cold as fuck in Siberia, no doubt. Also, obviously, very close to Christmas. And this is part of a larger process of Christianity kind of taking over older pagan holidays. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. It's also the day the sun begins returning closer to the earth. That's a huge date on the pagan calendar. I'm no expert, but I know it's one of, if not the most important date. So to sort of superimpose, if you're trying to move people away from that tradition Mm -hmm. and into your new tradition, and you're just like, oh, Christmas, our biggest day is also the same. Yeah. And you know, this sort of like religious repurposing, the repurposing of rituals, the kind of adapting one religion to another is, it occurs throughout the history of many, many religions. You know, if you look at when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, there was a parallel holiday to Christmas called Carnival, where they would sort of give meat to all the citizens. There was a parallel for Easter. There's a parallel for other days. So you could more easily transition your people into a new religion. Yeah, it got a lot less trippy over the years. But but we're bringing it back. Yeah, we're trying. Man. This <laughs> Christmas is special. Everybody's stuck at home. So, you know, uh, let's all try to incorporate more psychedelics into the tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And this gets to the get, being stuck at home uh, gets into our next move of these shamans. Our hardworking and kind-hearted shamans have gone out. They followed the reindeer herd. Uh, the reindeers find the mushrooms. The shamans are following the reindeer. They mm. gather up some mushrooms for everyone. Now they got to make home delivery. But when they get to your door, it's mid-December in Siberia. Your door is blocked with snow. Oh, my God. Okay, I think I see where you're going with this. (laughs) This is what you know, this really is the actual beginning of the famous poem. There's a man in your house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the, the structures that people were living in, the easiest way is if you know what a yurt is, mm. uh, a, a kind of a, almost like a tent that would have an opening at the top so you could have a fire inside and the smoke would go out the top, not too different from a chimney. Yeah, uh, And so the shamans, and you're like snowbound in your house, trying to live out this awful winter, pretty bored, been stuck with the same small number of people for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the darkest, shortest day of the year. Everybody's feeling kind of down. And then all of a sudden, what should a clatter or whatever? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Here comes this guy dressed like a mushroom jumping down through the roof of your yurt with a big sack full of mushrooms. Oh, my God. And, you know, if your house is encased in a mound of snow, you know, it's reasonable to think that you might hear the footsteps of the reindeer coming up against your walls or ceiling. I mean, look, we're talking about a yurt, which is essentially a dome. You know, there's no real flat roof on this thing or anything like you would think of like a traditional thatched roof that is a clatter with the footsteps of reindeer but in this situation you can kind of picture that okay there's this house buried in snow the shaman shows up he can't get to the door he's got his reindeer with him the way you know he's there is you hear the a a clattering of the of the reindeer footsteps 
And then you're like, oh, here's this guy. And he comes down and, you know, he's gone to all this trouble. So you give him milk and cookies, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the equipment, probably like yak milk and and bulgur cookies or something. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've actually slept in a yurt in Siberia as part of a, a doc I was shooting a while ago. I did get to drink fermented yak's milk or perhaps horse milk because there's a lot of horses around there too. Needless to say, nobody came through the chimney with mushrooms, unfortunately. But I have an idea of the snacks. <laughs> nice. I, You know, I'm putting that on my wish list. Uh, warm <laughs> socks, mushrooms, and some fermented yak milk. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another interesting question. Hmm. Any idea where... Amanita muscaria mushrooms are found. If you're if you're a mushroom mm. forager, where would you be looking for them? Hmm. I'm not exactly sure. I, I'm I'm not a mushroom forager, but I would guess you know on a forest floor in a relatively wet and moist area. Yes, and very specifically, they are found underneath fir and evergreen trees. Oh, my God. The greatest gift that you could possibly receive is one, in fact, that you would find under your Christmas tree, and it's fucking mushroom. That is absolutely crazy. You know, if you take a nature walk, you know, whenever, you'll see that mushrooms do choose these sort of, you know, places to to thrive. You know, very often it's like a place that's like a little bit shaded, uh, you know, a place that's wet and moist. And of course, you know, underneath the tree, that is so fucking crazy, man. Bean, when you promised that minds would be blown <laughs> over the course of this episode, you were not lying because that is absolutely fucking crazy. I was at a Christmas tree lot yesterday. My girlfriend wanted to get a little Christmas tree for her place. And we were there like looking at these trees, you know, there's like a line of trees and I was like, wow, it's so strange. You know, when you take a step back and realize that like every season, there's this tradition where you go and get a tree from outside and put it inside your house, like in the corner and then you put presents under it and you like decorate it, like you do whatever. And I was like, what a strange tradition. And here we are, I'm realizing that it all has to do with mushrooms. Everything is drugs, people. If that, if there's one thesis statement of this show is that just everything goes back to some sort of awesome natural substance that has been put there for us, that is really a gift to us as humanity, and this is no different. Yeah, I'll, I'll summarize just to say, you ever looked at a tree covered in tinsel? You ever looked at a tree covered in tinsel on, on shrooms? <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to quickly say, don't ever eat a mushroom that you find outside of a store. <laughs> Unless you yeah. really know what you're doing. And oh, yeah. even Amanita muscaria, don't just grab one off the ground and eat it. It needs to be uh, handled and processed properly, which we, which we will get to in a minute. Even down to things like stringing popcorn and cranberries. Uh, mm. uh, that mimics the way that you would get these mushrooms and, and string them up in, in front of the fire to dry them out, uh, which oh. makes them more potent. And makes them a little easier to digest. Oh my God, that is so crazy. Literally every little detail 
it has something to do with with a mushroom thing. So this is pretty well proven, right? I mean, how theoretical is this backstory? I mean, we got a guy from Harvard. What more could we possibly do to confirm this? I I mean, short of a time machine, it's to me, there's there's no counter argument. You know, there's there's too much there. And it's 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 too sort of well documented. I think to me, one of the most compelling things is you can go back to the even the 1800s and you can find these old sort of woodcuts and Christmas, like the earliest Christmas ornaments would often show Santa with these mushrooms on them. And we'll put some on our Great Moments in Weed History Instagram for sure for you to see. And these are, you know, yeah, there's newer ones that people have drawn, but you can find ones that are over 100 years old, even greeting cards that people would send. So I'm giving this zero Pinocchios. I'm saying that I'm Mm. I'm quite confident that this, uh, 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 you know, you might find somebody to dispute it, but they would be a very uh, curmudgeonly and... untrue person for sure yeah seriously anyone who then defends the you know the capitalist backstory over this one is probably lame <laughs> yes that's a strong correlation should we just keep piling the evidence on let's do it man i want more Okay, so this is another another really interesting angle on this. This is Dana Larson, a longtime cannabis researcher, and he was writing about how even putting a star on the top of the Christmas tree references the shamanistic traditions of the tribal peoples of pre-Christian uh, Northern Europe. Uh, so this is this is Dana Larson writing the star too. <laughs> Insane. I, you know, it crossed my mind a second ago when we talked about Christmas lights. But now I'm like, actually, the star, too. Insane. Take that, Jesus. <laughs> he did. <laughs> I, I think that the lesson, too, is and, and do go listen to our episode in season one about Jesus's use of cannabis. It's, yes. And, and partly the theme of the of our whole show is how much of this important, interesting, fun, you know, foundational history has been rewritten and erased to deny us all uh, our birthright of, of access to these plants and these mind consciousness states. And it's no coincidence that capitalism is what we were given in its place so yeah that's right jeff bezos does not want you to know about the mushroom (laughs) origins of christmas we have some good friends at a publication called double blind they're new they're covering psychedelics in a really cool way they have great guides on how to safely consume psychedelic mushrooms how to grow your own so i recommend that and you know, do a, if if this is all new to you, do a lot of learning before you you do anything else. Uh, yes, absolutely. And Double Blind is a really good resource. No matter what your level of experience is, you'll probably learn something and take something away from it that improves your overall experience of using psychedelics for whatever you want to use them for. Absolutely, and also maybe check out Maps, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, for a bit more of an academic take and all the latest incredible research into how uh, plant medicines, uh, which are now decriminalized in Oregon and Washington, D.C., and soon Mm -hmm. many other places have incredible medicinal and spiritual value for people. So 
Uh, yeah. And we'll put in the we'll put in the show notes a lot of links to learn more about mushrooms and other psychedelics. Yeah, definitely. And you know, Maps has been keeping psychedelics legit for a long time. You know what I mean? I, I think that they're an organization that has really taken a scientific approach. You know, taken a pretty conventional approach to demonstrating the benefits of psychedelics for all sorts of different things. So huge shout out, Maps. It's because of places like MAPS that, you know, psychedelics are now starting to become legalized. And of course, it's because of the uh, long shamanic traditions going back mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of years that we have this tradition to relearn and to reconnect to, yes. including... Uh, to understand why we put a star on the top of our Christmas tree. Oh, my God. Why? This is insane. <laughs> okay, so this is Dana Larson writing, and he says, These ancient peoples, including the Sami tribes of the central Russian steppes, mm. uh, they believed in the idea of a world tree that served as a kind of cosmic axis onto which the planes of the universe are fixed. Whoa. Very trippy. Yes, very well said also. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so the roots of this world tree, and you got to picture this in your mind, uh, they stretch down into the underworld, mm -hmm. while the trunk of the tree is the, quote, middle earth of everyday existence, where you and I live, uh, and everyone listening to this, almost all of our lives. But the branches of the tree reach upward into a spiritual realm. Wow. Uh, now, so that that places our tree in a in a big context. The North Star was also considered sacred since all the other stars in the sky revolve around its fixed point. Oh. You see where this is going. Yeah. The top of the world tree touched the North Star. And so the spirit of the shaman in these psychedelic states would climb up this tree, the world tree, and thereby pass into the realm of the gods. Whoa. This, yes. And this is the true meaning of the star on the top of the modern Christmas tree and also the reason that Santa Claus makes his home at the North Pole. Oh, my God. Literally, they thought of everything. <laughs> and that's really incredible. You know, if you can imagine the image, right, of a fir tree, right, of an evergreen tree in the wild, right, in, in a Siberian forest, it's drizzled in snow. So there's like sort of snow frosting different parts of it, right? And underneath it, there's a family of Amanita mushrooms, red and white. And you're looking up at this tree against the night sky, and what you see through all the branches are a bunch of stars almost decorating this thing, like Christmas lights or, or ornaments. And at the very top, you see the North Star at the top tip of this tree, right? And you're tripping. So you're seeing all kinds of other crazy shit hanging from the tree, too. <laughs> I mean, that is the most Christmas image that, that I, I can think of at all. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's got green, it's got red, it's got all of the visual traits of Christmas. That is incredible. It's the most 
Wonderful time of the year. Uh, yeah, and I think one, one last thing to keep in mind, you know, often when these, uh, you know, when you're going from these older traditions, shamanistic pagan traditions to these Christian traditions, it, it's not always by choice and very often not. And so we see, you know, these things like putting the star on top of the tree, the red and white as attempts to hold on to these older cultures and embed them in these new traditions so as not to lose connection entirely. And for us, uh, a thousand years later or whatever, it allows us to follow these breadcrumbs back. And so it it, it has worked in its way. Um, if all of this was lost entirely, we would have no way to go back and 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 figure this out. And of course, the, the last piece of the puzzle, I think we got to talk a little bit more about these reindeer. Yeah. Oh, my God. OK, so what more can we say about these reindeer? Well, uh, <laughs> now it's going to get uh, hang on even tighter to your sleigh bells. Oh, boy. Uh, Amanita muscaria, or flyagaric, uh, mushrooms are actually mildly poisonous if you eat them. So it won't kill you, but it will, could give you very uh, unpleasant, uh, you know, feeling, digestive, etc. Mm. Those poisons are broken down when you digest and eat the mushrooms. Mm. But the psychoactive compounds in the mushrooms remain fully active in your urine. So... Some ancient tribes, instead of eating the mushrooms or in addition to eating the mushrooms, they would drink the urine of reindeer who'd eaten the mushrooms so that they could get high but not have these tummy aches. Wow, that is crazy. Certainly from a modern perspective, pretty gross. You know what I mean? I think in in our worldview, drinking any kind of urine is a pretty nasty thing. Uh, but there are cultures all over the world, uh, you know, ancient and modern, where drinking urine of various kinds is, is seen as something medicinal. And in this case, I mean, you sort of see that they have a almost scientific understanding of this natural process. You know, it makes me think of the way that um, the Iowa Scaros uh, in South and Central America for thousands of years have known that, you know, you mix the vine with this other natural occurring substance. And that's what will, you know, prevent your body from too quickly breaking down the DMT. And, you know, they sort of have, you know, they're shamans and they're mixing herbs, but really behind the, that mixing of herbs, there is a scientific understanding. I mean, and you have to really think about, you know, before modern science, these are people who understood, okay, like there are separate compounds in this thing I want one of them, but not the other. And this reindeer is almost like a filter for that. So you can just get the the compound that you want. I think that's very interesting. And I also think that that's why a shaman who is going around bringing people, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, gifts during this solstice would want to keep some reindeer around so you could occasionally, you know, re-up a little, you know, take a hit, as it were, of reindeer. <laughs> Yeah, you want to get high on your own supply of yeah. psilocybin-infused reindeer urine. I mean, or that's... Blixen's supply. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I, 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 I water down Blitzen's a little bit. It's yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 you like, you like know your reindeer and you're like, <laughs> oh man, is it a Rudolph kind of night or is it like a Blitzen kind of night? You know? It's like the ABV tells you how much alcohol there is. Blitzen's like one of those <laughs> yeah. triple, triple hop. Uh, and so yeah, if he's you got that buy... look in his eye tonight, you know, I don't know if I want to drink his pee. <laughs> so if you've listened this long and you've been along with us this far and it all sounds like it makes uh, a trippy kind of sense to you, but you're you're doubting the reindeer urine drinking thing, uh, I'm going to kick it to this very upper crusty sounding guy from the BBC just for a second. In the past, Sami shamans took fly agaric in their visionary rituals. They even drank urine from reindeer, believed to be under the influence. Wow, this has been the most earth-shattering Christmas special of any kind ever. I gotta say, there is no <laughs> amount of claymation puppetry that could, you know, completely change the way that you perceive Christmas, the way that... We just did in, the, in this last hour. This shit is fucking crazy. And if you are listening to this on Christmas or any other day, I truly hope that it has shaken your foundational belief in Christmas as it has ours. Yeah. So just to recap, because like we covered a lot of ground, you know, not as mm. much as Santa in one night, but we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. So to recap. Santa Claus is an Arctic shaman who dresses up like a magic mushroom, follows reindeers through the woods until they happen upon some psychedelic mushrooms, and then waits for the winter solstice to break into your house in the middle of the night and gift you dried magic mushrooms, psychedelic reindeer urine, or both. And then, (laughs) (laughs) upon waking... You and your family scarf down these shrooms and spend the day tripping balls and gazing in wide wonder at the pine tree you dragged inside and festooned with ornaments. Wow, the true meaning of Christmas right there. (laughs) And you know what the real takeaway of this is? Boys and girls, it has nothing to do with how bad or good you have been all year. (laughs) You're all good. This is not about judgment, you know what I mean? This is not about being like, Review yourself and feel shame and, you know, like, you get a lump of coal. Nobody gets a lump of coal. In the true meaning of Christmas, everybody gets mushrooms and everybody deserves mushrooms. And when you eat them, you realize that the very concept of good and bad uh, is this earthly thing that doesn't even matter once you get into the higher branches of your Christmas tree. Wow. Very nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very high. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, this has been a real one for me. I I love to tell you this story. I I miss you, buddy. For I miss uh, you too, man. I think let's let's can we can we smoke a little weed together on the on the outro on this one? I got I got yes. I got my I got my 2020 homegrown is now nicely cured, and and I'll share some with you next time I'm able to uh, puff puff pass instead of oh, just man. puff puff. I would love that, and I miss smoking with you. You know, this is the first official episode we're doing remotely. You know, I I think that when we get to do it in the room, it's just us hanging out, and I love that so much. And, you know, this 
is not as good, but it's still so fantastic to recapture that spirit with you, you know, especially for a Christmas episode and to tell this story that, you know, is just so special and I think gets to the heart of why we do the show, because if we don't talk about this stuff, I'm afraid it'll be forgotten. So thank you so much for that story, Bean. Anytime. And everybody listening, as we said at the top, your support means the world to us, whether it's just sending yes. us a nice message, whether it's putting a review on iTunes, whether it is joining us on Patreon, or honestly, please tell your friends about the show. If you if you listen this long, yeah. you must have loved it. Uh, and make sure you get together even remotely with your friends and blaze a nice J this Christmas, uh, crunch, a, crunch a cap and a stem, uh, and uh, we'll be right there with you. Yeah, and, you know, please follow us on social media. That's at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Support us on Patreon. Uh, And, yeah, have yourself a really special holiday. Take it easy on yourself. It's been a really crazy, hard year, and we all deserve to chill. So be good to yourself. Be good to each other. Stay indoors. Wash your hands. We love you, and we'll see you again soon. That's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.